Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be wrapping up the New South Wales state election, looking at the final results in both houses, and we'll also be talking about the proposals to expand the size of the federal parliament. My guest today is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer in government at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Ben. So it's been about a month since we did our first results show on the Monday after the New South Wales state election. Since that podcast, the final numbers in both houses were finalised. The coalition came back in a lot of those close races in the lower house and ended up doing a little bit better than expected. Labor ended up winning 45 seats, so they have a hung parliament, but they're relatively close to a majority. Meanwhile, last week, we finally got the results from the New South Wales Upper House after about three weeks of counting. There was a uh, 11 progressives elected to the Upper House out of the 21 elected at this election, which overall produces a tied Upper House with 21 that are broadly considered centre-left and 21 who you can consider centre-right, with the Liberal Party narrowly beating the Animal Justice Party for the last seat. So, Stuart... Let's talk a little bit about what happened in these close races. We had a lot of races on election night that looked like Labor was in a good chance to win. And really over the course of like the Monday and the Tuesday after the election, as the uh, special votes got counted, things started looking a lot better for the coalition. Um, What do you think happened there? Well, what I think is that, you know, what you had was the, the classic election night uh, how what it looks like, you know, projected to win 47, possibly, you know, 48 or 49 seats to the Labor Party. As counting progresses, you have more of those, you know, special votes, you have your uh, any leftover postals, um, some of which would have been cast earlier, some of which would have been uh, cons- considerably earlier, when perhaps you might have thought that Perrottet was doing a bit better. I mean, the fact remains that those special votes are often uh, coalition-leaning or, you know, liberal-leaning, not always, but often, um, particularly where you have an election where people are not entirely convinced of which way to vote. So early on in the in the campaign, one of the commentaries was that Minns was, yes, he perhaps he, there should be a change and Minns should become the, uh, the, the Premier, but there was a certain, un- certain uncertainty, if you <laughs> will allow me to say that, uh, around whether he was going to be competent. Perrottet, for all his apparent faults, seemed to have done something in his term uh, as Premier and seemed to be at least competent. So this is where you have that competence, incompetence, or perhaps uh, a question mark around someone. And so some of those earlier votes could well have been, well, I'm not sure. I Do I want to trust him? By the time you get to election day, however, that's when people start to make a choice. And I think that's when you saw you know, more seats would have been going to Labor on election night. And we saw the same thing for the, the Green vote, which traditionally you know, starts off high and works its way down as more and more and more of those votes are counted. For some parties, however, it makes no difference at all. For Liberal Democrats in, in particular, their votes stayed pretty much the same you know, throughout. Uh, without any uh, the special votes. Same number of people are voting for that particular minor party because that's who's going to vote for them. The results models that are used on election night do assume a certain variation between election night and special votes and would have assumed that. But the the swing was much smaller on those booths to, to quite a large degree. And it's been a little bit hard to fully quantify that at the moment. And once all the final results data is in, I'll, I'll be able to do that and go, what was the swing on those votes compared to what um, happened on election day? But that was part of it, was that maybe there needs to be a little bit more of an, a range of possibilities considered. I mean, uh, 
on election night, on the ABC's computer, Labor got up to 47 seats. They looked like they were leading in 51, but they got up to 47 that have been called. Wake up the next day, that number's down to 45, and that's where it stayed. So there was two seats there which looked like they'd been called, and that's really all it came down to. Because of that, we're in a situation now, we've got a hung parliament, we have 45 Labor, which in other situations could be a bit vulnerable, but there is 12 members of the crossbench. You've got three Greens, uh, and nine independents, one of whom, Gareth Ward, is a former Liberal and probably can safely assume to side with the Liberals, but that still leaves kind of 11 people for Labor to work with. So while they're in a hung parliament, they're actually in a pretty strong position in a hung parliament, right, Stuart? We have to remember that Perrottet went to the election with a hung parliament. He wasn't in majority. Yes, he could guarantee most times that, he's, that, that legislation would pass, but they haven't actually been in majority since the election. I mean, have very rapidly ended up uh, with a, a minority government. Um, and in fact, with, with, uh, as we've noticed over the last couple of terms, number of the independents strengthening their position. So, you know, the, the former Shooters and Fishers all were returned. But Donato the, in orange saw his vote go up considerably. We saw the same for McGurr, for Greenwich. So their positions are quite strong now as independents. Um, which you might have otherwise thought, well, maybe they'd be coalition seats. Now that they're on the crossbench, now that they're actually technically and formally independents, there's a lot more room for manoeuvre for the Labour Party. Uh, Ward is going to be an interesting one because people are unsure about whether he uh, can actually have the seat if the charges against him are proved at any point. There are allegations before the courts. Um, we don't know whether that will, how that will play out. If he is found guilty, the Assembly will be the one that, that then makes a determination. Does the government want him in there? Will the coalition and crossbench say that nothing's been proved? Um, where will in other independents go? I actually suspect they'll say, well, nothing's been proved. It's an allegation. It's before the courts. It's probably best that he doesn't attend. But do we say that he, you know, he should or shouldn't um, be a member of, you know, of, of Parliament? Well, that's a bit harsh to say, no, you can't be on an allegation. The argument has always been that just opens the floodgates for people to um, to make any form of allegation. You have to go to the courts to prove that you're innocent. You prove yourself innocent, but of course you've lost your career. If he does get convicted, though, I, I'm not sure of the exact mechanism, but I'm fairly sure his seat would then be vacated, and uh, like particularly if he serves any prison time or anything. Um, and that would then trigger a by-election, which you'd have to say Labor would have a decent chance of winning. They almost won the seat. You know, maybe maybe people go back and go, well, we'll just vote for the regular old Liberal now. But I think there's a good chance in that scenario Labor picks up that seat and it gives them one of those two votes they need for a majority. I think that that's, that's likely, if only because uh, the Liberal person or person who ran for the Liberal Party that was an MP from out of the area, she wasn't wanted by the local Liberals. Uh, they wanted Gareth Ward. They thought that he was appropriate and a good, uh, good their, their representative. Um, so I actually think that, yes, they'll, uh, the Liberal Party could do badly there. What you might see in a by-election is spoiled votes, exhausted votes, or people deciding that they won't vote, they won't attend, or they attend and spoil their ballot paper. Uh, and that would hurt the Liberal Party. Uh, Labor voters will happily vote Labor to say we'll need this seat. What will have occurred in the meantime uh, in state politics, of course, may at the end of the day affect that. But the fact that McGurr and Greenwich were happy to say, yes, we'll support the government on uh, confidence and supply, 
means that they've got a basis to govern. And so they're, they're governing now. On most legislation, I would expect you know, the Greens to support, sometimes critically, that is that they'll be critical of the, the legislation. But on most day-to-day running, the government is actually quite safe. Uh, it's only when it comes to getting stuff through the, the upper house that it becomes awkward. Well, let's talk about the upper house in a minute. But before we uh, leave the lower house, uh, I found, found it also very interesting that when you looked at the seat-by-seat results, I feel like a lot of the story of of variation in voting swings at this election came down to the personal votes of MPs. It seemed like, I mean, it's always a story, but it was a big story this year. A lot of retiring Liberal MPs, Labor tended to do better in those seats, not universally, like Labor didn't win Holsworthy, for example, where the Liberal MP had been deselected. Um, but they, you know, they picked up Parramatta, they uh, picked up Riverston, they didn't do very well in Winston Hills nearby where there was a sitting Liberal running again. So there was definitely was a story there about um, the personal votes really making a difference. Well, I think it's a personal vote makes a difference. It also works the other way. Uh, to be fair to the Liberal Party in Parramatta, Jeff Lee was not overly well liked um, by residents around here. So I would have suggested that he was a bit on the nose and that there was now a build-up of resentment against the Liberal Party. One of the reasons he may well have decided that the time was to go. Uh, that didn't make it any easier for the Liberal Party. I think personal votes do make a difference. We saw it uh, across the board, actually, where you had an MP being challenged by, particularly by the Labor Party. So uh, Jamie Parker retiring in Balmain saw the Labor Party almost take that seat. Um, You didn't see it where you had strong local members. And this is the, the, the question of the independents, where they're seen as strong local members. Their votes were significantly up. I think that's a lesson that that incumbency matters. Sometimes it can matter the other way, but Gareth Ward is a very good example of incumbency matters. People thought he was a good candidate and they voted for him as an independent and not as a Liberal. There's an interesting story as well about the southwest of Sydney. I think that's a place to watch. Uh, I think some of the commenters on my blog have been a bit premature in declaring the collapse of Labor's support in that area, and these seats are still pretty safe. Cabramatta, Liverpool, Fairfield, they were the three seats where a Labor MP retired, and two of those seats, Cabramatta and Liverpool, were the only Labor seats that had a swing to the coalition. There were some coalition seats that had a swing to the coalition, but I found also that the same trend applied in the upper house, which is interesting. It seems like there's a bit of a Whatever's happening with personal votes in the lower house is playing to the upper house. Greens also got the biggest swings against them. We're all in seats with strong local independence on the North Shore. Greens got big upper house swings against them as well. Um, but that that Southwest Sydney thing, I think it's worth watching because you know they Labor's done badly on Fairfield Council. They've lost the federal seat of Fowler. Maybe there is something more deep going on there. But I think we're going to need to watch for another election to see how those new MPs can uh, bed themselves in in that area and if they can sort of rebuild them. But, like, Liverpool is <laughs> Liverpool is more marginal now than it was in the 2011 election. Like, Labor did better in 2011 there than they did in 2023. It's that shift across Western Sydney, actually, well, as you get further out of the, the inner urban areas. And here we're talking not just, you know, the inner west, as we, we know it in Newtown, uh, or seat of Newtown, <clears throat> Old Marrickville, now Summerhill, um, we're getting past that to Strathfield, Dremoyne, and those seats there. Now, as you get further further afield, yes, we're seeing the Labor vote fall back, 
I think we're seeing, you know, a, a form of, uh, I mean, I heard the other day that uh, that Strathfield was now being classed in the inner west, which is kind of a little absurd in one, on one hand. But on the other, you know, uh, hand, perhaps as the city expands continually into the, the west, that's going to be the, the trend. People there are within the 15 or at least half an hour city, whereas you go further and further, you're not. So perhaps it's Western Sydney that is no longer, you know, the, just the workers living there. It's the people who become established, perhaps, over a period of time. Um, and you, your workers are in your places like um, Parramatta, but Wentworth Point, those sorts of places that there's been urban infill that you're starting to see uh, the, the new voters appearing. And that some of the other uh, places, you know, when you go out to Liverpool or Milpera or places, you're seeing a lot of established houses who are perhaps becoming... I don't want to say that they've shifted from Labor to Liberal, but more to the point, their concerns are much more around employment, you know, jobs, the economy, uh, and less about um, you know getting getting a start in the world. They've got their start. So let's now talk about the upper house because when we did the last show, we had sort of a preliminary bit of a picture, and we understood that. We were looking at a situation where if the Animal Justice Party held on, we'd have a progressive majority. That didn't happen. Um, we're looking at 21 progressives. I'm talking broadly. We've got Labor. We've got Greens. We've also got one remaining Animal Justice member who was elected last election, and we have Jeremy Buckingham from Legalised Cannabis, who is a former Greens member. Uh, we talked a little bit about him last episode. I think probably would want to embrace appearing to be a bit more of an enigma and doing his own thing, but I think overall probably still does lean to the left, even if legalised cannabis might have picked up some votes from other places on the political spectrum. There was a clear progressive majority in the people elected this year, but eight-year terms, we're going to talk about that a little bit later with the Senate, uh, means that the people elected in 2019 are still there and there was a conservative uh, push there. So for Labor to get a majority in, like, a vote on legislation, they're going to need all those progressives, but also one extra. They've got choices, shooters, Liberal Democrats, One Nation. Labor can work pretty well with the shooters, but can they work with the shooters and work with animal justice and the Greens at the same time? I'm not so sure. I think it'll be legislation by legislation. I think there's, a, there's enough there for Labor to be able to pass the, the core of the legislation. I mean, classically, when the shooters and fishers were first elected, they were promised, you know, shooting ranges. And they said, that's great. Now we won't bother turning up. We've got the things we want. We'll vote on that. We'll give you confidence and supply. But we don't actually need anything else. Um, there's, you could do what was done in the past with Fred Nile, which is um, promote one of them to being the president or the, the deputy president of the council. Um, not sure how that would necessarily play out. I mean, maybe the replacement for Mark Latham, Mark Latham now having got his a new eight-year term, um, the former Labor MP, Tanya Mihalik, she may well be open to something like that. Will she want to take it from the Labor Party? I mean, she felt very hard done by and left. Maybe she'll be embittered uh, by them, but maybe she still has allies and maybe that's the, the way to, if you like, her heart. Um, the other one is maybe Robert Borsak would like to be president and maybe the Lib Dem would like to be president uh, or deputy president. I mean, there's always a way, and as I said, this is what happened with Fred Nile for all those years, is that they were able to say, well, we'll give you a position, you support us on supply and whatever, and we'll debate out the rest. Actually, he was a very loyal uh, Labour voter um, in, for all those years. So this is where I think it could become interesting. Uh, I do think that Buckingham will be one of the ones to, to 
need to be cajoled by the Labor Party. He'll need to be duchess, and he will be. Um, the the shooters and fishers know what they what they stand for, know where they want to be. The Liberal Democrat will be new to Parliament. I expect that they would normally be uh, somewhere in the, the Liberal range, but the Liberal Democrats have turned out to be far more libertarian at times um, than you might otherwise expect um, in terms of being a, a conservative. They're much more libertarian as opposed to conservative. So where there's a freeing up, you know, a re removal of some form of uh, legislation or removal of uh, some constriction on people's rights or freedoms or whatever, they may well just support it and say yes. Um, so they were never great opponents of things like gay marriage because it's a person's, you know, that's their own thing. Certainly being gay is, is certainly your own decision. And so they were not necessarily opposed to it because they're not that of that conservative bent. So I think there's lots to play with for the Labour Party. Whether they actually end up with the Liberal Party and National Party playing ball on any on any issues, that's quite another thing as well. In uh, opposition, the National Party often separates itself from the Liberal Party and uh, makes a bit of a play to be a bit more independent. Um, and at various times, certainly in other states, uh, WA and uh, South Australia spring to mind immediately, um, Nationals have played a moderately constructive role. Uh, from opposition but towards government where they've been prepared to negotiate whereas the Liberal Party and certainly if the Liberal Party follows the Dutton model will just oppose, oppose, oppose you know? no, 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 no Last thing on the Upper House as well the Animal Justice Party actually got a bigger vote than they got at either of the last two elections but it wasn't enough to win one of the things I noticed when I was analysing the results was there was a more of a concentration of the vote like the, the candidates who were getting elected on less than a full quota were getting much more of a share of a quota than they got last time. Last time, I think the the candidate who won the 18th seat polled less than two-thirds of a quota, and this time less than two-thirds of a quota uh, wasn't enough to get 18th, 19th, or 20th. Um, so there was just less preferences flowing around, and I think that partly undid the AJP, but also that they were running against a Liberal candidate, and the coalition generally picks up more preferences than some of those other minor right-wing parties. So last time around, they were competing with the Christian Dems and the Lib Dems. This time around, Liberals, a bit harder to beat. When you actually look at the votes, there was nothing left over from Labor. There was, there was literally nothing left from, from the Greens. Um, even though Greens might otherwise, if Greens, say, had polled 10%, there would have been something there. Um, certainly Green voters, I suspect, and certainly it was on the how-to-vote things, the vote for the AJP. There would have been something more there if people followed the how-to-vote recommendations. Uh, yes, I think the preferences just don't flow that far down, remembering that they won't necessarily be two. There might be three or four or five on people's tickets. And we know that if you're not two, you don't get a lot of preferences at the very end. Whereas I'm sure if you went to the Liberal Democrats, you'd go Liberal Democrat, maybe one nation, but probably to the Liberals. And even though there might be a deal, that's how people will necessarily think about it when they're actually wanting to cast their vote. Because the one thing is, you know, you can have a deal, but you can also have people numbering the way they want. And that can swing or change things. We'll see about how many people marked their preferences because I still think it's possible that there was more people marking preferences this time 
than what we've seen in the past, but we'll see when the full data set is out. The Elizabeth Farrelly Independence Party, which was a renaming of Keep Sydney Open, Keep Sydney Open last time gave a really strong preference flow to Labor and and the AJP. This time around, that didn't happen. The Farrelly Independents were getting a lot of votes from the North Shore. I think probably a lot of people who were voting for Teals in the lower house, and they gave a very weak preference flow to the AJP. In fact, the party that gave the biggest boost to the AJP in that preference flow was Lyle Shelton, the independent, who um, like about two-thirds of the preferences of his that flowed between Liberal and AJP. I mean, some of his, a lot of his preferences would have gone to the other right-wingers who were still in the count but were guaranteed election. But... Um, Shelton was first on the ballot and the Animal Justice Party was second on the ballot. So anyone who was donkey voting won two. Those votes would have gone from from Shelton to the AJP. So that was the point where the AJP made their biggest gain on the Liberal Party was when Shelton was knocked out. And then they didn't get much from Farrelly and then One Nation just knocked him out of the race. So... Yes. Oh, well, we've seen that as well with the Liberal Democrats as to uh, often their placement with respect to the Liberal Party. The number of times when they have been number one uh, in the first column, they do very well. Uh, If they're towards the bottom, they do quite poorly. Um, If they're close to the Liberal Party, then, you know, you you can still see this. And this is partly the the name distinction issue. Uh, But it's also how you see and visualise the you know who will I who will I vote for and who will I give preferences to? Can you see it on a large ballot paper? You know when you're having to scan across all these different columns. If you see two that you think oh they're pretty close, I'll give them preferences. I, I think the way people vote is partly governed by how they feel that parties should where they should place themselves, but also partly on uh, how we see what's on the ballot paper. Do we see them all? Or do we just go oh no there's a couple that I want and I'll vote for those and I won't preference you know, all through the whole lot. One thing that was impressive for the Liberal Democrats was that they didn't get a particularly good ballot order. They were drawn right next to the Liberal Party, which um, theoretically could have helped them with preferences if they needed them. The Liberals did give them preferences and they were right next to each other, so it makes it a very easy one too. But in the end, the Liberals didn't have any preferences to offer and the Lib Dems didn't really need it. But they got that big boost in support despite that ballot position, often they get their most support when they are a long way to the left of the Liberal Party. So people who confuse them for the Liberal Party don't get themselves corrected by then looking next to them and seeing the correct Liberal liberal position. But they did this well despite that, you know, so um, good for them, I guess. Well, I, I, there's again, I, say, I, I suspect it's a case of, you know, a little bit of not voter confusion, but dare I want to say voter collusion, where they're looking at them and going, ah, oh, I can do this. I can go, and I'd love to see the actual ballot papers. Um, I'd love to scrutiny to see if, if Lib Dems were going Liberal Democrat 1, Liberal 2, on that basis that they were close together and they could see them where they were placed and then make that determination because it's easy to make then, as opposed to them being far away and you not seeing the other party there or making a a poor choice, as it were, or the wrong choice, not the choice you meant to make. The number of women in parliament has gone up. Uh, In fact, a majority of the MLCs elected to this election are women. Overall, once you include the 2019 cohort, it's 22 men and 20 women. But the big increase in the lower house, um, also a substantial increase. It's kind of a steady growth that we're seeing over time, but still relatively more male-dominated in the lower house, as you would expect. 
I mean, you still have some parties still not electing women. I mean, the interesting part is that Susan Fishers had previously elected a female candidate, and of course she was re-elected as an independent. But of course they are still steadfastly in the upper house male. The Greens, of course, have a completely all-female team in both the upper and lower house. So that's a different dynamic, I think, for them. Um, whereas obviously legalised cannabis you know, elects one male, former Green, etc., um, the Labor Party's on its, con- its continued trajectory, but you know the the problem will remain for the coalition at the end of the day. It's one thing to put them into the upper house, but you actually have to elect them into the lower house into safe seats. Labor's pretty much a parity now. Um, what's interesting is the coalition; their lower house numbers very male dominated. They got five women out of seven elected to the upper house, so that's a choice they made about their upper house ticket. The other topic we want to touch on briefly, based on a news story that came out on Sunday, I've got a blog post up on Monday about this. There's been talk for a while about expanding the size of the federal parliament. And the Herald story on Sunday kind of suggested, there's a bit of suggestion that that might actually happen, that maybe not this term, but even a second term of a Labor government. They are talking about possibly increasing the size of parliament just to lay out the constitutional arrangements. The way it works at the moment is The House quota is based on there being, as close as possible, twice as many House seats in the states as there are senators from the states. And what that means is as you increase the number of senators, which Parliament can do, you then have a flow-on effect with the increase in the House. So we we saw an increase in uh, 1984 and an increase in 1949. So it's been a solid four decades now since we've seen an increase the average number of voters in each seat has increased. And there's talk at the very least of increasing the number of senators to 14 rather than the current 12, which would add about 25 seats to the House. Stuart, your thoughts? I think it's long overdue. I've thought this for quite some time. Um, and certainly as we see the, 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 the voter magnitude required uh, in each seat um, hurtle its way upwards. You know, we're talking what 160, 170,000. This is bigger than the than we see in many other countries, and comparable countries to Australia. Uh, we really need to be seeing them. I would argue down around the hundred thousand mark. Um, there's no reason not to increase uh, parliamentary re- representation uh, if you believe that you should have a local representative. Um, if you don't believe you need a local representative, then why do we have you know single member electorates? Uh, that's the the argument saying we don't need more politicians. It says yes, but they're not your local politician. They're just a, a you know a person with a name who nominally comes from close to where you live. Well, if you're in Western Australia, that's you know six or seven hours away, uh, potentially. Uh, if you're in a city, you know Sydney, you know, that's not too bad. But even in um, uh, the outer fringes, the ex-urban areas, you're starting to see seats that are encompassing large amounts of land. You don't know your local MP. You'd be hard-pressed to name your local MP um, because these seats are getting larger and larger, more and more people in it. They've got less and less time to talk to you. and They've got more and more pressing things to do in Parliament. Uh, A talent pool that is not getting any bigger. Uh, This is one of the reasons for expanding it in 49, but also in um, 80, 84, is you actually need to also expand the talent pool. You need to get enough half-decent MPs in to be ministers, particularly senior ministers, when you have real pressure on them these days. Um, you know, if we're talking about major overseas events, but trade issues, uh, infrastructure, uh, the kinds of issues that we now have to tackle. 
So I think it's long overdue. Um, my, myself, I don't think you want to go too far, but if you could at least pull it back some way towards the um, maybe the 110 or 120,000 per seat mark, uh, that might mean taking it to 16. But, you know, at the end of the day, you could make a small move now and make another move in a, a decade down the track, although these things tend to happen, you know, once in one or two generations. Um, so maybe the, the Labor Party can just think about, well, we're going to go big, you know. Let's let's double the size of Parliament. You know? Why not? <laughs> I did have a question from one of the commenters saying, how big is the Parliament House building? How much can it hold? Yes. There definitely is capacity for it to grow, but I don't think there's capacity for it to double, both office space but also like space in the chamber, in the room. There's two political dynamics that would flow from this. One is... In the lower house, uh, you'd be adding a bunch of extra seats, would cause redistributions in the five mainland states. Um, probably if you made a modest increase, you wouldn't see change in the territories, but if you made a bigger one, you could. So that's in the lower house. A lot of seats that won't have a sitting member, areas that currently are locked down that could be more open. And generally, political science research says one of the factors that plays into how much political diversity you have in a parliament, like the range of political parties that get elected, is just the size of the chamber. You make a chamber bigger, even if you don't make it more proportional, you tend to get more voices in there. And it kind of makes sense. You think about it, smaller electorates, maybe there'll be places where the Greens win. So the size of the chamber plays a big role in political diversity. Well, uh, yes, certainly. Single member electorates as they get smaller, you can increase diversity. If for only the, the the reason being, you can actually meet all the people within a seat. Now, federal electorates are already quite large, but we certainly see it when you have uh, state electorates at 20, 30, 40,000, or in the, in the case of the territory, at three or 4,000. You've got the opportunity of meeting more uh, people within the electorate. That's harder for an independent to do, that just means you've got to have more time. But the bigger and bigger it gets, the harder and harder it is for someone with limited means to actually be able to reach all the people within that electorate, to be able to get their message out. The smaller it is, the better chances you have of meeting the most of the electors uh, or of the electors themselves knowing someone who has met you. Uh, it's the classic over-the-back fence type discussions that can also influence people. So, yes, we certainly know that uh, the, the bigger the electorate, the tendency is going to be, and this is diversion, but you know, the tendency is going to be towards one of the two major parties being the benefactors from it. Um, that aside, though, it comes down to that question of representation. What, sort, what form of representation do you actually want from uh, your seats, or from your uh, electorate districts, or if you wanted it, and I know this, is, this occurs with the Senate, um, is it meant to be from the states? Is it meant to be from parties? Uh, is it meant to be it's just simply a diversity, as we see in the um, the Legislative Council here in New South Wales? Um, so I don't think really that people have quite tackled you know, what they want from a parliament um, before they start talking about you know, why you should expand it, which I think is one of the reasons you have so many people um, in the out there in electorate land going, uh, why do we want more politicians? You know, they just breathe more air. It's like, well, it's the same people that are out here, but hey, get your point. There isn't a reason to expand it. The reason to expand it should be you'll get better representation. You'll get better decision-making. You'll get better representatives. And that should be the, the, the discussion point to my mind 
for increasing the parliament. Uh, you may even, if you're lucky enough to have, as they do in the UK, 600 MPs, you might get relatively local representation. Uh, where it's less than 100,000. Yes, well, why don't we have that? If you think about a local area potentially electing someone, one of the ways in which I think it does help minor parties and independents is there's less of an area you have to cover, less of an area you need to be known in if you're an independent. You know, there might be pockets of areas where the Greens are quite strong now, but they're too small to, you know, have that strength across a whole federal electorate. But if those federal electorates were a bit smaller or substantially smaller, it opens the door. So I think there's lots of reasons to think it would help with that. Certainly wouldn't harm it. Um, Senate. So the Senate at the moment, we have 12 senators per state. The absolute minimum you could do is bump it up to 14. So that'd be seven at every election. But you could go more. You could go 16. You could go 18. You could go 20 if you wanted. Uh, as you do that, though, you increase the magnitude, which means you lower the quota you need to get elected. So you would think as that number goes up, the door opens more for smaller parties to get elected. You know, it probably wouldn't help the Greens very much, at least in the States. The territories, you know, if you had a third ACT senator and David Pocock retired, uh, he'll probably have that seat in that scenario as long as he wants. But when he goes, probably the Greens would win that seat. But beyond that, Greens probably wouldn't gain anything from having 14 senators because they're already winning two in every state. Maybe it would make it easier for them to hold those that they already have. But it would lower that quota a bit, make it a bit more proportional. Um, and some people would like that. Some people wouldn't like that as the number gets really high. Some of us might think that's a great idea, but I think there'd be pushback on that as well. Oh, I think definitely is. I mean, we, we saw it was certainly it was aired very strenuously in Western Australia in the early 2000s when there was a, an idea to add some extra MPs to the uh, ledge council there in the the first changes set of changes 2002 2005 um, people saying why do we need more legislative councils what do they do anyway um, I, I, the reason why you might take it to seven is you know for greens they might go great we've got an opportunity you know to consolidate you know we'll always win two senators but it also opens up the possibility of other parties being able to gain I mean, that may be one nation um, or it might be someone else. Uh, I think this is where you know legalized cannabis or um, animal justice or a variety of other parties, very strong independent, could start to make some serious inroads there. So my argument would be, you know, the best you can start with seven. Seven always guarantees, uh, or not always, but often guarantees um, a minor party MP. That's the odd number situation. So if you take it up to you know, 18, you get nine. Nine certainly would uh, expand the, the, the range of options you see in the Senate. That would be a 10% quota. Yeah, I think it would make a big difference. Many more parties would make it over that sort of threshold, or at least a number of other parties would make it over that threshold. Might actually make it harder for the Greens, to be honest, um, because they're competing with a number of parties whose otherwise preferences they might have been able to rely upon to you know, consistently make it over the line. And at the very least for the Greens, you know, sometimes we, we count raw numbers of MPs, but really what we're talking about is proportions of power. If the Greens hold their 12 senators, but the, the chamber is is 50%, I won't do the numbers in, in my head right now, but if you, you'd you be adding uh, 36 more senators, so it'd be a much bigger chamber, which means that that 12 senators is, is a much weaker, smaller share of the chamber. So 
Yeah, so they're kind of in a, a sweet spot right now. One of the things I saw when I did my analysis of what might happen under PR was I found the Greens actually did better with five-member districts than with seven-member districts because with seven-member, there were less districts they could win in, but they weren't that much more winnable for them because they were already winning so many of the five-member. This was on 2022 results. I mean, we shouldn't assume the Greens will always stay where they are. Their vote could go up, their vote could collapse. They might find that lower quota super handy if they have an election where they're doing badly. Um, but in the current particular moment, they probably wouldn't be the main beneficiaries of it, actually. But they might benefit more in the lower house. I actually think you know One Nation would be a, a, a real beneficiary, particularly if there was a double dissolution. Um, they would pick up seats all around Australia. Um, I think Liberal Democrats could be a beneficiary in something like a double dissolution. There'll be a variety of different parties, particularly post-group voting ticket. The the drive to for parties to start amalgamating has, has only become stronger, thus fusion. It hasn't actually helped parties necessarily, um, but I think it'll it'll remain, and you'll continue to see uh, a, a, a coalescence or conglomeration of voters, particularly as we get further and further into the the freedom stuff. Um, around those parties on the right. So the right will begin to break up a little bit. Certainly if Peter Dutton continues on the way that he's going, I think you may even see another centrist party uh, emerge, not necessarily called the Teals, but someone who, you know, like the Australian Democrats. Not the Australian Democrats, because I think that their, their cachet is gone, their, their uh, ability to revitalise themselves as well, their time has passed, basically. There would have to be a new centrist party. Whether any of them catch the voters' imaginations is quite another thing. I mean, at the moment, the Labor Party is that centrist party. Um, but should it ever decide to move back towards the left, I mean, you know, uh, or more significantly to the left, that would definitely open up space for more parties to emerge. Um I, I do think it's it's a good thing to uh, to increase the numbers. I've said before that it's important in terms of representation, in terms of quality of candidates, or at least just the pool of candidates for the major parties. But this assumes that the major parties will retain uh, the sort of vote they have currently to be able to form you know, consistently a uh, single-party government or coalition and Labour. Um, or will we start to see the rise of new coalitions? One of the things I want to mention for the Senate is there is a specific dynamic we have at the moment at six seats per state, which is, you know, we had a double dissolution in 2016, but apart from that, we've had six senators per state elected at every election since 1990. Before that, you had double dissolutions or you had the 84 election where they elected seven at every state because they needed to... Um, boost up on top of the five from the previous election. Since 1990, most states have produced a 3-3 tie, left-right. Democrats usually fell on the left. Um, there was a couple of elections where there was a variation from that trend, but pretty much it was always three Labor, three Coalition, or like two Labor plus a Democrat or a Green. Maybe one of the Coalition would be One Nation. Brian Harradine as well. Yeah, Harradine, he's definitely in there too. You had these kind of splits We've seen some variety more recently. 2013, the last group voting ticket election, almost every state elected someone that couldn't really fit into that mould. So when I was doing the chart, there was a bit of variety there. But there is that split. And what it does tend to mean is you have elections where quite a large swing can happen 
and there isn't a change in that 3-3 split. And it means the race really boils down to the one state or the two states that can produce a 4-2 split. Howard got his majority in the Senate in 2004 because they got those 3-3 splits everywhere else and Barnaby Joyce got a fourth coalition seat in Queensland and Steve Fielding Victoria was a handy 40th seat as well on top of that. Um, but that really comes down to it. Whereas if you were electing seven or if you're electing nine or whatever, um, and I don't know if it would be such a big issue with other even numbers. As the number gets bigger, it's less of an issue, but it would probably would still be an issue with an eight, eight senators per, per election. But if you have an odd number, most of the time the left and the right get three each and that who wins the majority of the vote really does matter for who gets that seventh seat. And so the middle ground of the Senate would be much more in play and uh, could potentially produce clearer results. Um, although I, I don't really want to get into all the potential constitutional changes we could do here, but one of the things that does make that harder in the Senate is because you have those old senators changing over from the previous term, it does make it harder for the Senate to reflect the actual election result. But um, yeah, that six seats is one particular factor that would be good to change regardless of the other questions about increasing the size of the chambers. There's no reason that they couldn't, I mean, one, fix the terms. Just say, all right, it's a fixed-term election. You know, we'll have elections on this day, you know. Uh, I know that the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, uh, those who like to discuss saying, no, no, it's the sovereignty of parliament. You can't constrain the sovereignty of parliament. Well, it's, it's working in most states now, so, you know, you can actually fix states. Um, for the... Uh, it, it then allows you to align the dates of you know an election, the declaration of the election, and the, the, thus the, the seats coming in. So, you know, you see this in New South Wales, where there's a set day, the legislative councils are in, and they all start, right? And there's or the majority of them start, and there's no lag, if you like, and there's no um, you know months and months and months of waiting for the new Senate to take up its seats. Yeah, which we don't we don't really have at the moment because the last couple of elections have happened just before that. It was a big issue um, before the double dissolution in 2016, though, that you'd have Senates elected in August, September of one year and not take office till July of the following year. And it will happen again, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, no, it absolutely will. Uh, it, it did happen before. This is um, one of the the issues that Kevin Rudd faced after 2007. He had to wait um, until 2008. Uh, so you do have these issues uh, continue on um, where you have leftovers. And you used to see it in Western Australia. It was another one that had these set date um, for the Legislative Council, whereas the Assembly had a movable date um, for taking up their seats based on the elections. How it'll play out in the future? Interesting. I actually, I'm glad that they're talking about increasing the numbers. Then once they've done that, then they can start work on the states, uh, like increase the number in Tasmania. Well, they're they're working on that. Yes, that's going to happen before the next election, probably. Probably. I mean, it's been talked about for a long time. I remember it being one of the issues that um, uh, Lara Giddings was. I mean, there's been a few people on the Labor side have talked about it prior to the the. Um, several elections ago for the Labor Party. Um, will it come to fruition? Yes, it should. Um, will it actually make it before the next election? Well, let's wait and see. That's one um, uh, state that or, yeah, state that could do with one or two more MPs. Um, why doesn't Queensland have an upper house? Too hard to put back in, but why not? 
you know, uh, let's standardise it across the country. When I was talking about terms, though, I was talking about the fact that in that first RUD term, I'm not talking about that nine-month wait. I'm talking about the fact that generally the senators who get elected at each election are broadly sympathetic with the members of the House. You know, you get a Labor government in the lower house, you have a broadly progressive majority amongst the new senators. But because you have that old batch too, the 2008 to 11 Senate was actually pretty conservative. Whereas once Labor had won the second election, even though they weren't doing great in the lower house, they uh, they now had a clear progressive majority. And that was what's so impressive about the 2022 election. But it is a constant issue. We, we're seeing it now in New South Wales upper house that uh, a progressive majority elected this election, but uh, you know, Labor's probably going to have to wait till twenty twenty seven to get a progressive majority in the upper house if they can win a second term. If you abolish that, it would also have the effect in the Senate of um, making the Senate much more proportional because you'd be electing right now twelve at a time instead of six or fourteen or eighteen or whatever. It would make that election a lot more like what we have in New South Wales upper house. I was going to say that there's also one other issue to think about, which is of course that if you win a landslide. Uh, you can change everything. Uh, so this was the, the the so-called problem with the WA upper house was that it was not that it was staggered, but that the malapportionment meant that the conservatives always had a majority. But of course, the last state election in WA was a, a complete landslide um, to Labor, such that they won even in those electorates where they would normally only win one or two seats, they were suddenly winning three and four. And they wiped out the Greens and won all the seats themselves and thus were able to just move through and say, we will pass all the legislation. You know, We can pass all our legislation even when we've had this conservative majority and we can abolish the old house. Actually quite rare in WA or had been up until that point. Um, and now, of course, the system will be changed I think quite dramatically, but a landslide the other way, where you get 50% of the primary vote, could shift it back the other way. Landslides can still change everything. If you have a conservative government elected in WA, you'll probably have a conservative upper house. But um, under current circumstances, that would probably be an upper house that wouldn't be controlled by the Liberal and National Parties. It would be dependent on minor parties of the right, unless they really picked up their primary vote, which... I think works pretty well, actually, as a model. I've got other issues with the lack of PR in the lower house, but I think the model of um, a progressive government in the lower house needing people that are, they're not obstructive, but then they're, they're not pushovers either. You know, that they will ultimately, they, they'll find a way to do a deal, as we're seeing right now with the Greens in the Senate. You know, they the Labor and the Greens will go at it and eventually they'll, they'll come to an agreement. I think it's quite a functional system, but I think that that overlapping term is a bit of an issue and they, they had a chance to fix it in 1988 and they didn't. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about constitutional change another time. Referendums are coming up. This is the last episode of the current series, but we're going to be having some more episodes later this year in the lead up to the referendum and we've got a few other ideas on the table, but I might wrap it up here. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Stuart, for joining me. Thank you, Ben, for having me. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroomatmastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. 